0: everyone, and welcome to the March 21st edition of WorkComp Comp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Karen and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A ruling by the California Court of Appeal has severely limited a massive Orange County compound medication fraud case. In 2014, an Orange County grand jury indicted 45-year-old Karim Amid and 14 others alleging he formulated topical creams and oversaw an extensive network of kickbacks that paid doctors and pharmacists more than $25 million to prescribe and distribute his products. Amid was president of the Ontario company Landmark Medical Management. He and the others faced a total of 44 counts on felony charges, including conspiracy, trading rebates for patient referrals, insurance fraud, and involuntary manslaughter. The amounts individual doctors received allegedly ranged from $600,000 to more than $2.5 million. Ahmed allegedly paid these kickbacks to Daniel Capen, M.D., Andrew Jarminski, M.D., Raheel Khan, M.D., and pharmacist Michael Rudolph, and others, according to the indictment. The grand jury was instructed that it had to unanimously find a defendant committed only a single act encompassed within the count to return a true bill on that count. The defendants demurred in the trial court, challenging the way This grand jury indictment was rendered, resulting in the people amending the indictments to add hundreds of new counts, a separate count for each victim. The defendants then moved to set aside the amended indictments. On the ground, the grand jury had not made separate findings as to each victim, but instead had been instructed to find only one act. As to the involuntary manslaughter count, the defendants contended the new allegation embedded in the single charge of involuntary manslaughter also impermissibly charged the offense charged by the grand jury. The court denied the motion, but the Court of Appeal reversed and remanded in the case of Karim Ahmed versus the Superior Court. The Court of Appeal ruled that there is no logical basis upon which it can conclude that the Grand Jury made a finding as to each of the new counts in the amended indictment. The additional counts are new offenses not shown to be found by the Grand Jury and thus change the offense charged in violation of the California Penal Code. Based on this conclusion, that adding multiple counts of insurance fraud changed the offense charged. The Court of appeals set aside most of the charges in the two indictments. At the prosecutor's election, the case can be resubmitted to a grand jury, but this poses problems with the statute of limitations. At this point, it is not clear how much of this major case remains. After remand, the district attorney will have an opportunity to attempt to resurrect part of its case. It is not known at this time how successful this will be. And now our crime report. The Department of Justice Yates' memo has now increased the individual risk of prosecution in corporate health care crime. Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates claimed the day after she published this new guidance that Americans should never believe, even incorrectly, that one's criminal activity will go unpunished simply because it was committed on behalf of a corporation. Thus, the Department of Justice has increased the risk in medical fraud cases. This Yates memo announced an official DOJ initiative to hold individuals responsible for corporate misdeeds, both criminal and civil. By having the Justice Department's number 2 official instruct prosecutors to target individual business people for criminal prosecutions and civil sanctions, the DOJ is upping the ante in white-collar enforcement. The Yates memo is the latest in a line of similar pronouncements that began in 1999 when then-Deputy Attorney General Eric Holder penned a similar memo. The principles stated in the Holder Memo continue to evolve through several subsequent memos. The principles are a detailed framework that federal prosecutors are supposed to rely on in assessing whether and what charges to bring against a corporation in a criminal case. They also provide corporations and their counsel tools for considering important issues such as cooperation and remediation. The notion of targeting individuals for prosecution has been a stated goal expressed by numerous DOJ officials in recent years. It should not be news to anyone inside or outside a corporation that federal prosecutors are being asked to identify and prosecute individual executives and managers for their roles in corporate misconduct while this shift in policy will have significant implications for health care providers and their employees. DOJ attorneys have now been instructed to focus on individuals from the very start of an investigation. Once a case is underway, the inquiry into individual misconduct will proceed in tandem with the broader corporate investigation. Only in the rarest of circumstances will the DOJ now release individuals from civil or criminal liability when resolving a matter within a corporation. If a decision is made not to proceed against individuals, the justification must be memorialized and approved by the U.S. Attorney or Assistant Attorney General overseeing the investigation. An Aetna subsidiary reports that organized medical fraud is growing worldwide. Even Dubai has admitted that patients in the Emirate may be overdiagnosed and detained in hospitals longer than necessary. So, the director of the Dubai Health Authority is launching a scheme to regulate services provided by private hospitals across the UAE. But medical fraud is far from uniquely a Middle Eastern practice. It is estimated to add 10% to medical premiums across the globe. Countries with large expatriate communities head the list of offenders. People anxious about their health in a foreign country are easy targets. And insurers struggle against relatively borderline offenses, such as prescribing unwanted painkillers, ordering unneeded MRI scans, to full-scale criminal activity by organized gangs. Interglobal, the insurer for expatriates, which won the 2012 Industry Award for Unmasking Criminal Activity, can guarantee picking up a fraudulent claim every single day. Interglobal is now a part of Aetna. The company played a key part in revealing a massive fraud in which a criminal ring is said to have submitted scores of bogus claims to numerous insurers over a 10-year period. The operation was fronted by a virtual hospital, non-existent consultants, and a 24-hour switchboard. Inter-global officials claim the hospital was just a telephone in the desert, and a lot of insurers were caught by the scheme. While the Middle East was a major zone of concern, China is often quoted as another hotspot. In China, a group of people have built up a fabricated healthcare system, which includes hospitals, doctors, and customers. At the end of the day, investigators find that nothing actually exists. Insurers have been invoiced by a hospital that gives an address, answers a phone when called, Then it ends up that the hospital does not even exist. The Contractor State Licensing Board Statewide Investigative Fraud Team, also known as the SWIFT team, says unlicensed contractors are thriving in online environments. Online advertising services have become the go-to source to hire the right pro, as one popular website proclaims. However, they've also become a place where unlicensed contractors lurk. Of the 12 people cited on illegal contracting charges during the March 9 through March 10 sting operation in Napa, eight were contracted through online advertising sites that exercise little to no control over unlicensed contractors. In all, advertising including websites Licensed contractors are required to list their license number and unlicensed contractors by law must declare that they are not licensed. The Napa sting involved CSLB's investigators who posed as the homeowners seeking bids on laminate flooring, concrete work, fencing, painting, and landscaping. Six persons who came to the house and turned in bids were cited for contracting without a state license on the sting's first day, and six received misdemeanor citations for that offense on the operation's second day. Most of the bids for the work were far in excess of what's legally allowable, the $500 limit before a state contractor's license is required. An additional misdemeanor charge of illegal advertising was lodged against 10 of the 12 suspects. And in medical news, a new study presented at the 2016 annual meeting of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons claims that orthopedic care for patients living in remote areas may be safely managed through telemedicine. The new technology allows patients to receive treatment without traveling to a larger urban hospital for care. The study also found that remote care may provide significant savings in time, missed work, and health care and transportation costs for rural residents. Orthopedic surgeons at McGill University Health Center in Montreal used commercial encrypted email, and phone calls to communicate with primary care physicians in six towns in the northern area of Quebec. The towns are part of a geographic area surrounding the hospital, which spans more than 3,000 square miles, including areas where medical services are extremely limited. The patients primarily suffered from bone fractures, which typically required travel to a larger hospital for care. The study found that more than 75% of the patients were able to receive treatment from their local doctor with the guidance of an orthopedic surgeon at McGill. And these results show that you don't need an expensive, elaborate system to clinically manage patients with more common conditions. Researchers used a basic email system requiring virtually no startup costs or dedicated personnel. In contrast, sophisticated telehealth communication systems have higher operating costs. The email application that was used meets Canada's requirement for protecting patient information. The study estimated a savings of nearly $3.7 million over the study timeframe in medical transportation. These results will be important for planning and enhancing delivery of orthopedic care in remote communities and can result in significant savings by the patient and insurance or governmental provider. In another study at the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York City, researchers said there were better knee replacement outcomes at high-volume hospitals. And they concluded that if all patients scheduled for knee replacement were directed to high-volume hospitals for the surgery, it could save the U.S. healthcare system between 2 dollars and $4 billion annually. Numerous studies have shown lower complication rates and better outcomes in hospitals that do a higher number of knee replacements compared to low-volume hospitals. And this new study was designed to determine whether the lower rate of complications, hospital readmissions, and revision surgeries translated into cost savings. The researchers found that knee replacement surgery at higher volume hospitals is less costly over a patient's lifetime and provides better outcomes. This is the first study to include a younger patient population in addition to Medicare patients and a cost-effectiveness analysis of total knee replacement. This is important because patients under 65 now account for about 50% of those having the procedure. Researchers compared the cost-effectiveness of elective knee replacement over a patient's lifetime in low, medium, high, and very high-volume hospitals. Total knee replacement in the younger patients at very high-volume hospitals was associated with the lowest lifetime costs and the greatest benefits. In the Medicare group, results were similar, however. The cost savings of very high-volume centers relative to the other categories was more modest than in the younger patient group. Policy initiatives aiding to guide patients to higher volume hospitals when available will not only reduce their risk for complications and improve outcomes, but will also considerably reduce the large volume of financial costs uh, and burden of knee replacement surgery. The claim examiner's task of reserving for future medical care is becoming more complex by the day. It is hard to even imagine what medical science will have to offer injured workers even a few years down the road. For example, Vanderbilt University just announced that the FDA has given clearance to market and sell the powered lower limb exoskeleton created by a team of Vanderbilt engineers. The product, known as Indigo, is the result of an intensive 10-year effort and allows people paralyzed below the waist to stand up and walk. The initial development was funded by a grant from the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development. Until recently, wearable robots like Indigo were the concepts of science fiction. However, in the last 15 years' advances in robotics, microelectronics, Battery and electric motor technologies have made it practical to develop them and aid people with stroke and spinal cord injuries. The new device acts like an external skeleton and straps in tightly around the torso. Rigid supports are strapped to the legs and extend from the hip to the knee and from the knee to the foot. The hip and knee joints are driven by computer-controlled electric motors powered by advanced batteries. Patients use the powered apparatus with walkers or forearm crutches to maintain their balance. You can think of this exoskeleton as a Segway with legs. If the person wearing it leans forward, he moves forward. If he leans back and holds that position for a few seconds, he sits down. When he is sitting down, if he leans forward and holds that position for a few seconds, he then stands up. Indigo is the second exoskeleton to receive FDA certification. The first was a device produced by Rewalk Robotics. However, Indigo's clearance came after completion of the largest exoskeleton clinical trial conducted in the United States. Over the course of more than 1,200 individual sessions, study participants were able to use Indigo to safely walk on a variety of indoor and outdoor surfaces and settings with no serious adverse events. One of the design goals was to give users the maximum amount of personal freedom possible. One of the design requirements was to allow the user to put the exoskeleton on and take it off while sitting in a wheelchair. As a result, the indigo is considerably lighter and less bulky than other exoskeletons under development. This summer, the scientists will head a four-year U.S. Department of Defense-funded study of the tangible economic and rehabilitation benefits of exoskeletons for people with spinal cord injuries. This will be performed at three medical centers, James Haley Veterans Hospital in Tampa, the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and the Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Indigo has been available in Europe since November when it received the CE mark, the European Union's equivalent of FDA approval. The initial price is $80,000. The next step is getting the device approved for health insurance reimbursement. This involves getting CMS to approve a rate code for the exoskeleton. This is a numeric code that identifies the characteristics of patients who Medicare or Medicaid will reimburse for purchasing a given piece of medical equipment. Typically, the government will reimburse 80% of the cost of approved medical devices. In most cases, private health insurance providers adopt the CMS code. And in regulatory news, the CDC, the DWC, and other regulatory agencies are developing new opioid treatment guidelines. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention issued new recommendations for prescribing opioid medications for chronic pain, excluding cancer, palliative, and end-of-life care. The CDC guideline will help primary care providers ensure the safe safest, and most cost-effective treatments for their patients. While prescription opioids can be part of effective pain management, they have serious risks. The new guideline aims to improve the safety of prescribing and curtail the harms associated with opioids, including opioid use disorder and overdose. The guideline also focuses on increasing the use of other effective treatments available for chronic pain, such as non-opioid medications or physical therapy. In developing the guideline, CDC followed a rigorous scientific process using the best available scientific evidence, as well as consulting with experts. Among the 12 recommendations in the guideline, three principles are key to improving patient care. Non-opioid therapy is preferred for chronic pain outside of active cancer palliative, and end-of-life care. When opioids are used, the lowest possible effective dosage should be prescribed to reduce risks of opioid use disorder and overdose, and providers should always exercise caution when prescribing opioids and monitor all patients closely. Health and Human Services Secretary Sylvia Burwell has made addressing opioid misuse, dependence, and overdose a priority and other work on this important issue is underway within HHS. At the same time, the DWC is in the process of developing its own opioid treatment guideline. The last public hearing on the DWC guideline was in September, and the first 15-day comment period ended last December. However, there is a key difference between occupational and non-occupational opioid guidelines. A main goal of the former is the restoration of function to ensure early return to work. It is clear that government at every level has recognized the opioid epidemic and is responding with new guideline initiatives. Time will tell if these efforts will be effective. The DWC has appointed Jamie Spitzer, the presiding workers' compensation judge at the Anaheim District Office, and Neil Robinson, presiding administrative law judge of the Occupational Health and Safety Appeals Board, to serve as members of the Workers' Compensation Ethics Advisory Committee. The appointments are effective immediately. Judge Spitzer will fill the position designated for a presiding workers' compensation judge replacing Marina Del Rey presiding Judge Paige Levy, who was named Chief Judge for the DWC in February. Judge Robinson will fill the position of a member of the public outside the workers' compensation community, previously held by Alameda Superior Court Judge Alice Villardi. The Ethics Advisory Committee reviews all ethics complaints from the public against workers' compensation administrative law judges without learning the names of complainants or the judges. It then makes recommendations to the administrative director and the DWC court administrator. The committee meets quarterly and members serve without compensation. A judicial ethics complaint form and instructions can be found on the DWC website. And in other news, the L.A. Rams have ignited a workers' compensation firestorm with its new player contract. The contracts being offered to new Los Angeles Rams players state that the laws of Missouri, not California, control the relationship. And the NFL Players Association has in turn instructed all certified contract agents to reject that term as inappropriate. Critics say the Rams hope to nudge any workers' compensation claims away from California and into Missouri. The NFL Players Association has voiced a protest that any reference to the state of Missouri is inappropriate since the Rams have relocated to California. The Rams, however, say that the use of such language is more geared toward player bonuses paid out in March as an effort to help players pay a lesser state income tax in Missouri. The Rams later offered further clarification that all deals will simply roll over into California when the team moves in April. The team is planning to move out of the Rams Park and St. Louis by the end of the month. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates for past editions of our news, and for much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, your iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd Skarron & Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.